Hello, beautiful people. I wanted to jump in here real fast and let you know that Doug Cohen uh, texted me to let me know that his musical, uh, co-written with Dan Ellish, uh, the last guest we had on this podcast, The Evolution of Man, will be live streamed on October 23rd from the American Theater Group. I'll have a link in the show notes as to where you can watch that. But again, that's the musical, the Doug Cohen, Dan Ellish musical, The Evolution of Man, will be live streamed on 1023 by American Theater Group. Details in the show notes. I hope you can check it out. I'm really excited, and you should be too. Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, James Gaspiaro. Gaspiaro. James Gaspiaro. For becoming a patron. James Gaspiaro. Sorry, I don't know what happened there. That name just sort of created a vortex in the universe. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, thanks. We'll just call him Jim. Thanks, Jim. And uh, thank you for being a patron of the original cast and uh, and for supporting the show and for listening. And I hope you're enjoying the original cast of the movies because you're a patron now and you get to listen to the original cast of the movies. 45, 46, some kind of episodes like that we got in there. All kinds of movie musicals, all your favorites, and this year, of course, is the year of Sondheim. You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. Head over to patreon.com slash originalcastpod, pledge whatever you want, and become uh, become a patron. Join the crew. Join the growing group of people who have discovered the love of the original cast of the movies. So thank you again, James, for all that you do, and uh, for becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash originalcastpod. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is, what, is a lot of things. He's a podcaster, he's the former vice president of Finesworth Alley, and he's currently a communications manager at Actors' Equity. It's David Levy, everybody! Hey, thanks for having me. Muppet enthusiast? I should have brought that up. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll come up in this in this conversation. Uh, thank you for being had. It's wonderful to to speak with you. Robbie Rizal put us in touch, and I'm very excited about that, as always. Uh, he said, you I feel like Robbie is a, a running theme in how you've been getting guests lately. Yes, it is. It is. Robbie is, well, Robbie's a running theme. I think you could sort of kind of stop there. That's and, fair. And, yeah, Robbie's a I would expect theme. nothing less from an original cast podcast. <laughs> the original the original listener, Robbie Rizal. That's what he is. Uh, and great. And I'm sure we'll talk about Robbie, because we always do. But we're also, you're here to talk about... Girl crazy. Embrace me, my sweet embraceable you. Embrace me, you irreplaceable you. In your arms I find love so delectable, dear. I'm afraid it isn't quite respectable, dear. Now we've done crazy for you, so now we're going to go all the way back to the hallowed days of well, 1990, and <laughs> two whole years back, two whole years back from crazy, crazy for, you. for you, and talk about girl crazy. How did this recording? How did this recording and how did girl crazy come into your life? So I grew up in a household that listened to show tunes. My dad had a big record collection of, um, I, I would say, pretty much what you would expect uh, someone who grew up in his generation to have. You know. Uh, Oklahoma, Hello Dolly, that kind of stuff. And it was just the music of our lives. Um, And as I 
got older, I also started to develop my own tastes. And when the CD era came in, that's really when I feel like we went from having sort of a stable collection to a collection that grew and grew and grew. And that was a combination of like my dad being interested in getting more CDs and also me becoming a teenager and being able to both have my own taste and also have some of my own money. Mm-hmm. Um, so this album, while not the first CD we owned, must have been among the first. Because I think we got a CD player in 1989 and this album came out in 1990. Um, and I remember my dad bringing it into the house, uh, you know, when it was a, a pretty, well, you know, I think we got it when it was brand new, but also, you know, uh, I was 12 years old in 1990. This was before uh, what we think of as the internet. So uh, I actually have no idea how brand new it was when we got it. Mm. Uh, you know, looking back, I assume it was brand new when we got it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we got it a couple years later, but uh, let's go with, let's go with that. Let's go with that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this to me was, um, it, it sort of marked a, a diverging point in my taste and my dad's taste, which is not to say that my dad didn't like this because he did quite a lot. He still has a copy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this was maybe my introduction to the concept of the studio cast album. You know, a mm-hmm. group of people came together just to record the score uh, who weren't part of a production. It was also maybe my introduction to... Uh, the concept of like a restoration of a uh, previously not really lost score, but a but a score that hadn't really survived in its full original version with all the songs and all the orchestrations intact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say maybe because like the big fancy showboat came out a couple years earlier. Yeah, it was around that same time. Yeah, and and that's not an album we own, but may, definitely something I was aware of and maybe got out of the library, but also mm-hmm. not something I liked when I was ten. You sure. know, <laughs> it's, right. Um, and and the big difference between Showboat and Girl Crazy is that Girl Crazy is fun. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Showboat has fun well, moments, it but it is fun, a right? it, but it is a big, it heavy, dark three and fun. a half hours, yeah, right? right? Like, uh, you know, Girl Crazy is all you know. I got rhythm and Sam and Delilah, and and it's you know, it's it it's jazzy and it's and it's one disc. <laughs> Yes. So for for me uh, at age twelve, and for me at age forty three, it's uh, it's just a different kind of delight, and mm-hmm. and it really um, it, it, this is the album that got me interested in exploring more about the past, more about you know the works that predate Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, it got me more interested in in learning about how is it that a show gets lost? How is it that you know a hit show from you know, one of the most important composer lyricist teams to ever write for Broadway that introduced Ethel Merman to the world. Mm-hmm. How did all of that not result in us having a, a better record of it? And, and then also like, uh, because, um, you know, we're all nerds. I'm a nerd in a couple different ways. Like that this comes with a big, thick, um, yes, 96 page booklet, uh, that has <laughs> lots of essays about, uh, what the show was like and how they put it together and what choices they had to make, what choices they had to make when uh, they didn't have information. And and that was just catnip to me because it was like, mm-hmm. oh, it's like a, a real peek behind the curtain that you don't get when you just pick up, you know, the original cast album for something that's running on Broadway right now. Sure. So, uh, so all of that sort of came together for, for this to really be a, an important album for me. And uh still is well yeah and it's it it is a real it's this real like lost time almost of broadway shows because it's the period 
between vaudeville and Oklahoma, where shows are evolving. I was actually just talking about this with Dan Ellish. Shows are sort of becoming, they're coming out of the vaudeville thing, but they're still basically like shows with sketches that and dances and we put songs in them. So as shows, like they open and then they run and then maybe we'll open them with a different star and not all the songs fit. So we'll like trade in some songs by the same composers here and there. And that sort of becomes the tradition for these shows like Girl Crazy or Babes in Arms and things like that. And then they get movies get made of them and they completely redo the whole thing and the book gets completely rewritten and then they bring it back to the stage to more closely resemble the movie. And like you say, by the time it gets to any kind of quality recording, the original is is long been lost and nobody remembers like, wait, who did that? You know, how did we put this together? What 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 was the original setup for this? And, you and know, no so, one cared. Right. And that you know, like, thing. Yeah. Like they, at, at the time if they were making changes because the new star was coming in, there was no thought to, there was no thought that there was any value to holding onto the original version. So right. sometimes they would just like literally like cross things out and write over them. And then it was, and it was anybody's gone. guess. Well, it was the, 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 it's, it's forgotten. I think a lot that the, the practice used to be when they remade movies that they would destroy the negatives of the original so that people couldn't, they could only buy the new version. Like that was so, part of the point. Let <laughs> me tell you. So one of my, uh, you know, everyone during the pandemic picked up different hobbies. One of mine was getting very into both operettas and 1930s and forties musicals oh, wow. of, the, of the screen. Sure. And so like, those meet at things like the lost original version of Rosemary. Mm -hmm. So, uh, oh God, that hurts me so much. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's just gone. Like, it's not even, there's not, like, it's not even like this where you could maybe reassemble it for some scores or things like It's a movie. Like, they destroy the negatives. It's gone. Or, right. you know, lost in a fire or whatever. But it, it is that kind of, that level of disappeared. Although and part of what makes uh, Girl Crazy really exciting uh, along those lines is that in the 80s, there was a big discovery that's known as the Secaucus Warehouse discovery. Mm -hmm. Do you know about Yes, this? I do. But I'm, yeah, I'm sure my listeners would love to hear about it. Yeah. So I feel like this is one of those things that was such a such a huge topic of interest among cast album nerds in the like 80s and 90s. And I don't know if people still really talk about it. Um, but for those who don't know, uh, there was a big basically storehouse of lost or thought to be lost score materials from all sorts of shows from this pre-golden era of Broadway that had just been sitting there for, I don't know, 60 years, 70 yep. years. Um, and that is where a lot of the materials that produced Girl Crazy came from. And also, you know, the, I think that's where the um, the big Broadway revivals on your toes from the 80s, mm -hmm. that I think was sort of what spurred that along. And, and, and really this whole can we call it a mania for 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 reconstructing old musicals well, it was really was, fed by that but it yeah and it kind of was a mania. i mean it's it's funny to talk about the like the early the the this cuz this coincided with the arrival of CDs and i think you have to put those two things together because suddenly we could fit the 75 minutes of grow crazy mm. on one disc and we could print this booklet that it was much cheaper than like printing the big albums we didn't have to lay the wax it was like it was a lot cheaper to produce and we wanted people to buy CDs. And there was this sort of sense of like, oh, it's re-recorded, it's remastered, it's redone, like we've, it's restored, it's in better quality. It's a digital original, yes. right? Like it was made for CD It has that sound. great thing on the back they used to have on CDs, which would be like DDD or ADD yeah. or AAD to tell you whether it was like recorded in analog, mastered in digital, and then produced in digital. Like there's all these little settings. And 
So yes, these this would be like it, it's like remaking a movie for Blu-ray almost. It's like this is the higher quality, like but the recordings are low quality, so we're gonna up the up the game here. And yeah, I, I would I, I don't know if I call it a mania, but it was certainly something where like when I worked in the music library in my college, like most of the albums we had of shows from this period were from the nineties, where those big, mm-hmm. you know, RCA two disc with the with the you know the sleeve and then the giant booklet thing like the whole album then all the cut songs and all the essays like you say um so yeah this was there was a lot of shows you could buy with with sort of (laughs) i will say and (laughs) the cover art probably leaves a little something to be desired but other than that i mean well you know so girl crazy was the first of a series um that was produced by it was a co-production by Roxbury Records, which was like the record company, basically that Lenore Gershwin, Ira Gershwin's widow, set up to do this series, mm-hmm. and uh, Electra and Unsuch, which used to right. be one company. Um, and so all of those in that series, they had these like very classy but very dry like period photos with like I mean it's like Girl Crazy is literally beige. <laughs> it is. It is beige, and it is like I love it. But the juxtaposition of it being like Girl Crazy, you know, like that's the title with like the two least girl crazy looking men I've ever seen in my entire life. Like they just look tired, <laughs> right, <laughs> and kind of cranky. Um, but it's George and Ira Gershwin. I mean, what are you going to do? But it 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 is. Yeah, but a lot of the covers were like that. They were sort of like very kind of neutral, or the composer's face, or like instead of using original poster art which the poster art from those periods was well so there were two interesting basically competing series right there was mm-hmm. um uh, john mcglynn who is the other big conductor mm-hmm. of uh these reconstructed scores he's the one who did showboat and he did kiss me kate and he did brigadoon and he did any get your gun and for those they had better cover well ostensibly better, better they covers, have, at well, least for, yeah showboat and kiss me kate used the original show poster right. artwork um and again, you're going to have like a very awkward picture of Kim, Kim Criswell dressed up like Annie Oakley. Yes. Uh, Brigadoon had a very lovely painting. But then uh, this series with John Macherry and his were all of the like very stuffy looking. Yeah. Um, weird. Like, well, which was the, the style for like classical orchestral CDs at the time. And that's what this was marketed to. And right. Like if you were to Google, this got reviewed in a lot of like classical music journals. Mm-hmm. Um and and that surprised me, I guess, because it is not classical music in the least. Like it's not even operetta, right? Like this right. is straight up jazz. It's not Porgy and Bess. It's right. Know, these are show tunes. Right. These are standards, like what we would call them. Yeah, yeah. Gershwin does straddle that line, though, when people try to put him in a catalog because yeah. of Porgy and Bess and Rhapsody in Blue and and all his all the kinds of music he writes. His show stuff ends up in a lot of classical classifications in catalogs because they have like, well, it's, I guess it's that thing of like, he's a composer. We have to put him somewhere. We can't like say, no, he did a lot of different things. He was over here and he was also over there. And uh, this was also the era of the classical crossover Broadway album, because in addition to these reconstructions, there was also that like very bizarre series of Kiri Takanawa covering different Broadway sh- oh, shows. Yes. So was, you know, Kiri sings West Side Story, Kiri right. sings South Pacific, Kiri sings uh, My Fair Lady opposite Jeremy Irons. Right. There actually used to be a very funny Forbidden Broadway sketch about this where they like envisioned what Kiri was going to murder next. And it like was like, Kiri sings Greece. <laughs> she did it South Pacific, didn't she? Yeah, 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 with Sarah Vaughn as uh, right. uh, as Bloody Mary. Is Mandy, Mandy Vatinkin on that album? Yes. Okay, that is, I have heard that album. Yes, Mandy Vatinkin is. It's not good. No, it's not. <laughs> this album is full of because it was also funny from that period. Is that you? If you bought the albums like we did, and you read the books like you did, 
you started to notice the same people over and right. over again. And like the name that pops up on this one for me is Judy Blazer. Like Judy Blazer was a studio cast album. She's on that great, um, what's the other one I love that she's on? The Leonard Bernstein's New York Yes, um, record, which I love is, that album. Yeah, with, also with Mandy Patinkin and and, it, and Donna Murphy. And, you know, she's on this. David Carroll, late of chess, is on this, which is great. Um, and Eddie Corbich pops up. You know, like, there's these these people who are popping up doing... It, it's great for those one-off songs, because you have, like, great... And also Vicky Lewis, who I love to see on a cast album. And Lorna Luft, obviously, is on this doing, yep. you know, which obviously this show has great connections to Judy Garland. So, like, that was a, that was a no-brainer, I think, for them to go get. It, it was, Luft. although of everyone in the cast, she's the one who I think is maybe the biggest missed opportunity. Um, oh, what do because, you mean? Well, I get that they, you know, so for listeners who don't know, Judy Garland did the movie Girl Crazy, yes. which doesn't really have much in common with this, no. but does actually keep a, a title many of, of the songs. songs. Yes. Um, but you know, Lorna Luft plays the part that was written for Ethel Merman and Lorna Luft, although I love her and Grease 2 is a favorite film of mine. Um, Lorna Luft is no Ethel Merman. Right. And Lorna Luft here in particular just comes across as like very bland. Hmm. And for a part that really was written for a character voice, it, it feels like a missed opportunity, especially that this is 1990. This is uh, coming right off of like, both Faith Prince and Debbie Gravitt making huge splashes in Jerome Robbins Broadway, mm-hmm. either of whom would be such a natural for this part. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just think of either yeah, of them Faith doing, Prince doing that would be fantastic. Right. That's really interesting. So it, it's, it's a little, uh, the, yeah. honestly, that, that bit of casting, I think is what holds this back from being like everything it might have been. And mm-hmm. she's not bad. Like Lorna does a very sure. incredible job. She just, she it just feels like she's the replacement cast i got rhythm i got music i got my man who could ask for anything more i got daisies in green pastures i got my man who could ask for anything more old man trouble i don't mind him you won't find him round my door i got starlight i got sweet dreams I got my man who could ask for anything more, who could ask for anything more. Oh. Which is funny because she was the Adelaide that I saw in uh, oh, really? the Guys and Dolls production that Faith Prince originated. <laughs> Lorna did the tour. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, speaking of Faith Prince. Uh, th- that's funny. See, I thought it, it's not the the moment that stood out for me. Because I was, I think I read his name in the notes and then was like, I wonder if I'll notice he's there. And then, oh my God, do you ever, is Frank Gorshin. Yes. <laughs> Who I was fortunate enough to see live do um, Goodnight Gracie, the his one, oh, yeah. one, one person George, uh, George Burns show. And Frank Gorshin is probably best remembered for, for pe- fans of pop culture as the Riddler on Adam West's Batman TV series and the movie, but was a very famous song and dance man, an impressionist primarily. And man, do they give him a track on this album. To do yeah, it's such a perfect thing. match for him. Because, it really uh, is. Molly, cheer up, will you? I bet you'd feel better if I sang like Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> They're writing songs. They're lucky stars above. 
but not for more. What about Al Jolson? With love to leave away, I found more skies of gray than any Russian play could guarantee. My little mammy, what about Jimmy Durante? I was a fool to fall and get that way. I hope a lass and also that a take Eddie Cantor. Although I can dismiss all memory of others. What about all of them? I guess she's not. No, I guess she's not. I hate the thought of it. I gotta tell you, it's not for me. If you know Susie like I know Susie, oh. He, so he takes on a role. Originally, Girl Crazy was not written for Ethel Merman because she was not a star yet. This was actually written around the talents of a vaudeville comedian named Willie Howard, who was actually part of a brother act with his brother, Eugene. And it turns out that they actually hired both of them because that's how the business worked at the time is that yeah, if you oh, wanted yes. a brother act, you hired, both, you hired of both of them. Yeah. yeah. And they just didn't put Eugene in the show. He showed up every week to collect his paycheck, but <laughs> had no part. But <laughs> Willie Howard was the impressionist um, and, you know, a, a Yiddish dialect comedian. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even though he is not, the star 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 of the show mm-hmm. he had a featured part and um so that's sort of why it was important when casting this album they went and found someone who was sort of a star and, and an impressionist and who mm-hmm. could do a, a credible job even though he really only has like a number and a half yeah he's got an interesting comedic number in goldfarb that's i'm needed a man who's brave and strong to rid the town of crime that's I'm. They needed a man who would not take graft unless it was over a dime. That's I'm. They needed a man who knew the game through serving a lot of time. Uh, that's I'm. Which is, you know. A perfectly cromulent comedy number. But then, yeah, it's just the comic reprise of But Not For Me, really, that he kind of comes out for and and does his, you know, him and and Judy Blazer, which is, like I say, very funny and really, uh, really good. But yeah, he's not on the album very much. No, you get the sense that in performance, uh, Willie Howard probably uh, milked these numbers for like some extended oh yeah reprises and, oh, and just you know yeah. however many more impressions and the liner notes just says that he was known to sometimes like take requests from the audience to do more impressions so uh <laughs> well, you know, that's vaude- the sort of thing that i vaudeville think thing like it's that's right that's what that's what he comes i mean it's that tension that sort of finds its way even into Broadway and the like, and even up into the 60s with Zero Mustel, who's, you know, yes, come out of that Pearl Bailey. Yeah, would just like, if it was going well, they'd interact with the, like, break character and interact with the audience because that's what they did, which, as, as the story goes, when Zero did it in Forum was fine, but when he did it in Fiddler, it was less well received by the production staff, uh, especially Jerome Robbins, I'd imagine. But uh, it is. It's a different tradition, and that's what that's what's so interesting about musicals like this to me is that this is like a straight book musical. It has ten, you know, it has a book that has a plot. The songs emerge out of s- scenes of you know more or less, more or less. <laughs> like some don't obviously, and some seem to be written like, well, we need a big cowboy number, or we need a big you know what other 
several right and, and like some like, of the, these songs like i understand embraceable you was something that they had written for a previous project that mm-hmm. didn't get off the ground and so they just dropped it in dropped it in here yeah and you know i think when i was younger part of what made this fascinating to me is i had always heard because i i I grew up idolizing Stephen Sondheim. And so mm-hmm. even even at 12 years old, I had read, you know, all of the then available books about him and understood that his whole thing was, you know, how everything had to be so interwoven into the show that it almost didn't make sense if you took it out of the show. Mm-hmm. And then I encountered this and I was expecting things to just be totally generic. I'm like, well, these aren't generic. Like there's cowboy numbers and it's a cowboy show. And, and you know, th- I, I I didn't quite understand that the difference between like you would still have a love song that grew out of a love scene. It's just the difference between how specific is it to that character versus could two characters in a different show sing the same song. Right. And would it make as much sense? Well, and and that's, most importantly, could somebody standing up in front of an audience with no introduction, sing this song and have it make right. sense. Like it ha- this song has to live in the, you know where I mean it's and there's there's interesting moments of tension between Sondheim that you read about with Richard Rogers and with Julie Stein, where yeah. they just have a very I mean I remember I'm sure you know this as somebody who's worked on recording for for Do I Hear a Waltz but that one of Sondheim's idea I don't know if it was his idea or somebody else's idea that Do I Hear a Waltz if they were going to make it a musical that Leona shouldn't sing until the end of the show because it very was much Sondheim's somebody idea. who should find her voice. And Richard Rogers' response, I think, was, but where we put the ballads? And it was like, okay, well, that's like... And that's just two different philosophies about how you write musicals right. slamming into each other. And a lot of what Sondheim... You're right. A lot of what he... When he talks about, like, it has to be character-specific, it's really a matter of degrees. He doesn't want... Like, he's not going to make a decision and be like, well, if I write that lyric, then, you know, Johnny Mathis can't sing it or whoever can't sing it. Like, it's... We're going to write the lyric for this for the show, and then if someone wants to record it later, that's fine. That's entirely up to them. Right. And we're not going to think about that. We're only going to think about writing the show, which definitely was not what we were thinking. George and Ira were thinking about when they were writing. Uh, right. Absolutely crazy. not. Not a, not even not even. Which also shows though that there are a lot of solos in this show, because you would have a lot of performers introduce and then have their song, and they would right. sing their number, and that would be their song that they would then take on the radio, or they would do like. But that was the sort of also the negotiation of all this would, always, and that's why you say this was built around. Um, the, Willie Howard and his his amazing talents, such as they were, but the sh- the stars that emerged out of the original production of the show were, as you said, Ethel Merman and one Ginger Rogers, right? <laughs> and Ginger was was already on on the rise a little bit. Yes. She had, she had made a few Paramount pictures. She hadn't had her big Fred Astaire moment yet, um, but this this really launched her into the yeah. stratosphere. But also, they weren't the ones who made the recordings that took off. Right. You know, that the, these all went to dance bands. Um, and it was, you know, folks like the Paul Whiteman Orchestra, who, you know, had a very close relationship with Gershwin. They were mm-hmm. the ones who did the first recording of Rhapsody in Blue. Um, but also, just in general, were a hugely popular dance band and on the radio and ha- introduced so many songs that we think of as just like, timeless standards that didn't have an original version like they probably did the original version mm-hmm. uh so um you know the i think from the cast i want to say that the only folks who actually recorded their song more mm. or less in their version at the time mm-hmm. was uh 
uh, the four. I think that's all what what they're called, right? There's like the these uh, oh, four, the, the foursome, the Biden the my foursome. time group, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, who sing Biden my time, and yeah. they cut a couple singles of Biden my time over the years. Now, obviously, Ethel Merman has recorded. I got rhythm right. and Sam and Delilah and Boy with uh, has she recorded Boy with Love Is Oh, I don't know. Um, That's a good uh, off top of my head. I'm not actually sure I've ever heard her sing that. Hmm. But anyway, but she did not do it in 1930. No, you know? no, she did it many years later when she had right. when she was a star and had a recording contract and right. Would, and in yeah. fact, part of the way that they figured out what the original version of I Got Rhythm might have sounded like was someone i want to say michael feinstein who was ira gershwin's like personal secretary for Mm -hmm. many years um tracked down a recording of the radio broadcast tribute to george gershwin that was done when he died and ethel merman performed i got rhythm on that wow and that's how they pieced together parts that were not in the score because there's a part in the score where the orchestra just sort of like drops out or vamps Mm -hmm. they're like what is going on there and it's it's the part where it turns out she did it's not exactly scatting. Ethel didn't really scat, but she does sort of a a, a wordless um, riff on yes. on the melody, and mm. that's that's where they found that and and how they put it together. Wow, that's fascinating. That is, I mean, because yeah, this this show is an excellent like apothe like a, a a moment where like so many people were together who are about to do tremendous tremendous work and the before like i mean like it, the other note i noticed on the wikipedia page was that the original pit orchestra had glenn miller gene krupa tommy dorsey and benny goodman in it which, right can you imagine no i can i absolutely cannot imagine that um and, and it, george gershwin used to just show up and play piano right, and for play the show piano. yeah which I, you know is also something jason robert brown does sometimes and i wonder if he got that idea from reading about George Gershwin. But you do also have, it speaks to the, I'm sure he did partially, but it, it speaks to the, also the ability, his ability as a pianist, like that he right. would just be like, no, I can get up there and do that, you know, like, and that's no big deal. And just knock it out. Of the, but of course he was very, very famous also. So it would be a huge yes. hit if he showed up and do it, did it. It's performed at the Alvin theater. It's funny to say that, that there was, is now the Neil Simon. See that on the, I'm actually now looking at the original poster for girl crazy. And that wouldn't have been a much better cd cover so no I we'll no just, we're not we'll just move on from there um you know we've gone on here for a little bit and we haven't actually told everybody what girl crazy is about so do you do you think you could summarize the plot such as it is of, i mean maybe <laughs> <of> girl crazy <laughs> well for so for anyone who knows crazy for you crazy mm-hmm. for you which came two years after this recording was basically they decided to do a revival of girl crazy and realized they couldn't really do a revival of girl crazy because it isn't quite satisfying enough for a contemporary to 1990s crowd mm-hmm. um but the the plot is more or less the same which is that you know there's a playboy in new york who goes west to a dude ranch um and falls in love and uh hijinks ensue i mean that's yeah, what, pretty much you know, <laughs> yeah i mean it's <laughs> there's not a whole lot more to it I, there really so, isn't he, yeah you know his uh his cab driver he he takes a cab from New York to uh, Arizona. I think it takes place in love it. Um, and uh, his cab driver is the Willie Howard character, Giber right. Goldfarb. So he was this like you know New York Jewish stereotype cab cab driver who ends up just staying with him and becoming the sheriff of the town. And um, <laughs> Ethel Merman's character is the like the B plot sassy dame who sings at the saloon mm-hmm. um, and. Ginger Rogers, I think she's like the male lady uh, of the town. Right, and who becomes it, the sort of star of his show and then sort of leaves and then sort of doesn't and sort of comes back. <laughs> right. And, and you know, she's the the love interest. In, right. And, and, 
<laughs> you know, that's it. It's- <laughs> that's it. It really is it. And it is like, so it's like a lot of, it, like I say, it's this the bridge moment. So like there is a plot, but it's very loose. It's mainly an excuse to get from sketch to sketch and song to song and sort of hang an evening together, not hang a story together. So like, right. And there's a show within the show, which enables them there to is, do yes. these big numbers that don't require even like the any faintest right. whiff of a connection to a plot. Not at all. Or no sense. No sense need be made. And it, it, it has that whole, it's another one of those like babes in arms is let's do the show right here kind of vibes right. to it that of course then would become the hallmark of like every uh, Judy, uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney movie. Including right. Girl Crazy. Including Girl Crazy. Including and Girl Crazy. <laughs> they really ramp it up in the movie. It's much more the plot in the movie than it is yes. in the show. Uh, there always seem to be, you know, traveling, traveling shows and they're just falling apart on each other. Ah, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's a really, I, I also noted there's some funny little, you mentioned like opera operetta with, um, with Showboat. And what I really found interesting about shows written in this period too, is how they, they occasionally drift into, if they're the serious ones like Showboat, they drift into straight opera. They kind of have a very operatic moments ballets you know serious plots murders suicide all that sort of great stuff and the ones that are comics take on every now and again a kind of gilbert and sullivan approach to sort of light operetta what Mm -hmm. what struck out to me stuck out to me with with ira gershwin specifically in his work in this show is there are two songs back to back uh that you that uh that rhyme uh the word the contraction i'm Yes. So you have Goldfarb, that's I'm, which is the bit of that song, and it's very funny. But then he goes into Biden My Time Reprise, number two, which also rhymes I'm, and that just felt very... I don't know if I would have noticed it so much if they hadn't been back-to-back, that I thought, like, that felt like a very W.S. Gilbert, wandering minstrel eye kind of bit. I'm Biden My Time Cause that's the kind of guy I wonder if it's that bite of my time. It's a trying to give you a little bit of a Western twang mm-hmm. with that, um, which I don't know that anyone in the West actually would have said I am at the end of the sentence, right. but to a New Yorker's ear, maybe it would read that way. And then because of that, and Goldfarb is the New Yorker character who has gone West and is trying to assimilate into this Western town, totally like adopting, but also misusing oh, that, that, that turn is? of phrase. Huh? Again, I've never seen this show. Sure. I only know it from the recording. I've not read the script. I have seen the Judy Garland movie, which really bears no resemblance no, to this. So right. this is an assumption. Pure conjecture. Yeah. But that's a good, I mean, it's not a bad idea. I, I sort of... See, it felt very... Goldfarb, that's I'm... It felt like you say the, the Jewish stereotype New Yorker character bit. That's what that was feeling for me in that moment. But that might have just been every other thing in the song felt that way. So it sort right. of just lands on that. But and of course, actually- it's it's parodying the the George M. Cohan song, Harrigan, That's Me. Right. So I also, it could just be that when he started it, yeah. with the idea of like, let's do a parody of this and then realize that he was already doing this I'm thing in right. this other song. Like, oh, that's a funny Why don't we way take to call that back a- to it. Yeah, because in Biden, my time, it's 
it's almost a throwaway and it's right. very lazy. I mean, it, it's it's also Biden. My time is fun because it is characters being lazy and the rhymes in it are incredibly lazy. And <laughs> that's fun to me. That's a fun. Le- I don't know how intentional that is, but it is like that's the music's very quiet, slow and lazy and droll. And, you know, it's like sitting on the corner, like down for like half tempo. And it just has that kind of like lethargic feel to it. By the way, did you clock the way that the foursome was cast for this recording? Oh, no, I did not. Uh, this is the cast of Forever Plaid as the foursome. Is it really? It's, oh, not, the ori- it's gr- not the original cast because Jason Graz swapped out here. Um, but this group of plaids mm-hmm. really stuck together and performed as the plaids in a lot of different situations throughout the 90s. Oh, wow. And interestingly, Jason went on to do a lot of these studio recordings, including the one that was the immediate follow-up to this, which was Strike Up the Band, mm. but usually as the juvenile, not as like the member of a quartet. So what is... So, David, draw me, draw me a line between you listening to... How old were you when you first heard this show? Uh, I would have been 12. 12? Okay, so how... how draw me draw me the line between, like, wh- when you heard this and then, obviously, you're into shows that takes you up to, you know, like, even Finesworth Alley. Like, how do we get on that track? Well, you know, in high school, I was in the shows, because that's what you did in high school. Um, and in college, I was behind the scenes. I directed shows. I produced shows. I did anything I could. I, I costume designed for production of Assassins, and I set designed for production of uh, Wizard of Oz, and, like, whatever... That's also sort of how my friends and I did theater. Like we just, we always called on each other to help out. So if you were directing a show early in the semester, then you might have time later in the semester to do something else for a friend's show that was, you know, slightly less intensive. Sure. Um, So I really kind of got a little taste of everything there. Um, And in the meantime, I also just had this sort of like obsessive desire to like hear more, learn more, know more. So Mm Um, you know, as soon as I had my own income from like a paper route, I was buying CDs and uh, just growing my collection and really getting to know everything I could. And and, and I also very much took advantage of my public library system and uh, borrowed both everything my library had and everything that was available through interlibrary loan until I just knew everything that I could um, and and started to to like as much as I could. You know, I don't I didn't like everything. And I still don't like everything, but I definitely branched out and learned to like a lot more than I thought I did. Mm. Um, And then in college, you know, junior year came around. I was like, oh, I should probably start figuring out what I want to do for a living. (laughs) And I applied to every stupid theater internship I could find and did not get them, Uh, (laughs) which in some ways was a blessing um, because especially now reading about like what some of those internship experiences are like. It's like, wow, I dodged a bullet there. Yeah. and then I was like, well, I, you know, in, in, in the, this time we're talking like the mid to late nineties mm-hmm. uh, and the internet was more of a thing. And uh, I was involved in a lot of early musical theater groups, either listservs or Usenet news groups, or um, I don't think Talking Broadway came yet, but through those things, I got to know a lot of the players in the cast albums business. So I reached out first to Bill Rosenfeld, who was running, show tunes at RCA mm-hmm. and he was very sweet and was like, listen, I just, there's not enough happening this summer to have an intern. But if you find yourself in New York, give me a call. I'd be happy to like, you know, meet with you and show you around and, and invite you to a recording if we have them. And I was like, great, thanks. I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I reached out to Bruce Kimmel, who at the time was running the spotlight series at Perez Saraband. And he was like, uh, listen, I can't pay you anything, but if you can get yourself out here, I will find you things to do. 
And out here, in that case, was Los Angeles, because um, that's where he was based. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that my older brother lived in Los Angeles, so I was able to sleep on his couch for a summer. Like, this is, you know, we all talk about all the different ways that privilege plays into the internship system and how people get their breaks. So, like, you know, this is a connection I made for myself, but I was only able to take it up because I had a place to stay. Mm-hmm. I got, so I got out there, uh, I worked worked for free <laughs> for him during the day. Mm-hmm. I got a nighttime job, so I... Uh, was working at, at Ferris Harriman during the day. And then at night I was working at universal studios on city walk um, until, <laughs> wow. so I was like I, literally working from, you know, in like, the nineties too, so. like nine to five and then six to midnight. <laughs> like it was, uh, but you know, like when you're 20 years old or however yeah, old I kinda... was at the time, you have the energy to do that. Yeah. Um, I didn't get paid, but I got paid in free CDs. So I, I actually made out pretty well. Save money, <laughs> um, probably. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I did, and then I, you know, got paid at my other job, mm. uh, so I, I did okay. And it just so happened that I went back to to Boston for my senior year, and you stayed in touch with Bruce. And uh, about halfway through the year, he's like, "Listen, I think that the writing's on the wall, and that my time at Verez is ending, and it's time for me to start my own thing. Uh, would you want to come start it with me?" And I was like. Uh, tell me more um (laughs) and basically he was like listen i know how to make albums but i need someone else to like run the business side of things could you do it and i said sure because when someone says that to you 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 say say sure whether or not it's true uh and he secured funding from uh some independent financiers who were not really in the business and i started work from my dorm room and we were like building the website and 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 hashing out contracts and negotiating deals. And then I graduated on a Thursday and the following Tuesday, I was on a plane out to LA and, and that's where I landed. Mm. Um, and that was both like the best and worst experience of my professional life, <laughs> uh, because we did some tremendous work. I'm very, very proud of, of the albums that we put out. We put out, um, I don't know, maybe two dozen in the like year and a half that we were working there. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who aren't familiar, Finsworth Alley crashed and burned in like the worst possible way. Um, and there were sort of two things going on. And I don't know how much we want to get into this, but on the one hand, our business model was uh, in many ways, a traditional record label business model of like, we produce CDs and we distributed them to stores and you bought them. Uh, but because we were a tiny independent label, we didn't have a direct distribution deal. So, you know, universal music produces music and then universal distributors distributes that music and they keep, you know, the, all of the money, right? right. Cause it's all the same company. Uh, Verez Saraban produces music and universal distributes it. And Verez keeps most of the money and universal gets a cut. Right. Binsworth Alley produces music and Perez Saraband distributes it through Universal on their behalf. And suddenly there's, right, there's so a lot people. less money left for Finsworth Alley. Right. And so the way that we were going to sort of uh, counteract that was that we were, I think, the first or certainly one of the first record labels to sell directly to consumers as well. Mm. So we built this very elaborate website, which no one was really doing at the time uh, with content marketing, which no one was really doing at the time, meaning we had new content on our website five days a week, whether that was games or interviews or streaming videos in the days before YouTube, we figured out how to do it. Uh, We had uh, something that we would now call a podcast, but back then it was not a podcast. It was a streaming radio show Mm -hmm. um, twice a week, I think. I mean, it was 
it was so ambitious. We were doing this with a three person staff. It's sort of unbelievable now to think back on it. Like no one, no one would it just, yeah, <laughs> you can hear it. I'm like, I'm running saying, out of words. You're like retroactively like. getting tense. It's really right. it's like, it's all catching up with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we, we would sell albums directly to consumers. We would release them on our website like I think three months before they went to stores mm. and the versions on our website would all have a bonus track that was exclusive to the website. Mm. So we had, um, I don't know, maybe about a thousand really devoted fans who uh, would buy pretty much everything. And we had a club where if you bought five, you got a hat. And if you bought 10, you get a t-shirt. And if you got 15, you get a free CD and sure. you know, all sorts of stuff like that, that uh, a lot of that now is uh, sort of par for the course, but at the time it was actually very cutting edge. Um, However, what we did not anticipate was that at the same time that we were launching, Apple was launching something called the iPod. Right. And uh, we were not prepared for that. We the we did not have the ability to to sell, you know, digital downloads. That wasn't a thing that was available on that level yet. Um, Napster and other kinds of music stealing services were on the rise. I don't know how much that actually affected what we did because we were such a niche, but, mm-hmm. but the industry was changing very, very, very quickly. And we were just in a little bit too soon. If we had started two or three years later, um, which is what Shikaboom and PS classics both did, I mm-hmm. think we'd probably still be around. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, uh, we made some bad business decisions, including the folks that funded us. Uh, that was not a, not a happy partnership. And, uh, Bruce Kimmel has written a whole book about his experiences there. And if you're interested, <laughs> uh, you can go read it. You go right you ahead. Buy it yeah. at chrisorland.com uh, <laughs> rather than rehash it here. But suffice it to say that uh, whether or not we could have eventually weathered our growing pains and become something sustainable is up for debate. But we definitely weren't given the chance because of this bad business partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when that sort of went down in flames, that left me, um, you know, really sort of licking my wounds. I, I got out of the industry. I moved back to Boston. I, um, I, I just sort of needed a, a little bit of space to figure out like what else I wanted to do. And of course, now, many years later, my career has brought me back to show business in a very different way. I'm actually, you know, now I work for the actors union, which is funny mm-hmm. because back in the time I used to have to negotiate with the actors union. Um, and, uh, I have learned a lot, including the value of like, you know, uh, making sure you have a contract and read your contract and know what's in your contract and enforce that contract, which serves me well where I work now. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could go back and tell, you know, 22 year old David to to stand a little firmer there. Sure. Uh, and also to, you know, no one's asking me for advice, but if anyone were asking me for advice, starting out their career, like if something smells like a bad deal to you, uh, trust your instincts, even if it means you're passing by something that seems like it might be a dream job because a dream job doesn't play games with you and a dream Mm -hmm. job doesn't, you know, abuse you. And uh, unfortunately that was not, not our experience with that particular venture. (laughs) But again, very proud of the work we did for, for those who aren't familiar, you know, we, we did the Broadway cast album of bells are ringing with faith Prince. We did the tour cast album of best little horror house in Texas with, and Margaret. We did the off Broadway production of Godspell that has like just a, a, a ridiculous number of people who've gone on yeah. to become 
big stars, you know, Shoshana Bean, Leslie Kritzer, and Barrett Foa. And, uh, well, it was the first recording of Tower of Babel, wasn't it, on that album? Uh, well, <laughs> the pe- first of all, no, because I think the J recording came out before that. Oh, okay. But also, <laughs> how much tea do you really want? All right, so uh, As much we, as you're willing to spill, my man. <laughs> we recorded that album thinking that we were... Uh, doing a great thing for Stephen Schwartz to have this new vision of his show preserved. And Mm -hmm. what Stephen Schwartz did not tell us was that he was simultaneously cutting a deal with DRG records to record the tour of Godspell with a different take on the score that was directed by his son, Scott Schwartz, uh, that would come out a month before ours. So (laughs) uh, our, our recording is better. Sure. <laughs> like, uh, like I, I own both. I, there are things to like about the other recording, but uh, so I, 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 which is so the the tour recording is the yellow cover, right? Yeah, the it's the lettering. one that starts with the windows sound. Okay. <laughs> and which which what is the cover of 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 the um the Finsworth Alley one? It's it's a it's the bottom half is a photo of the cast, and the top half is sort of like a blue background with gotcha. like a starburst. So You know the great, the great Finsworth Alley recordings on this show, especially Doss Barbecue and um, and Do I Hear Waltz, the, the Pasadena Playhouse cast recording, um, and I mean it's a real like it's a passion project, you know. Finsworth out like you guys it, it's like you say it's a niche of a niche almost, right? And the, and everyone who worked there again, there are only three of us, but like <laughs> you were people who like you know lived and breathed this stuff, and I, I think I think that's probably true for most people who are doing anything related to musical theater right like there mm. aren't a lot of people certainly no one's getting into musical theater for the money um <laughs> and <laughs> but occasionally especially like you know that the 90s into the 2000s was a golden age of recorded show music both in terms of yeah. new things getting recorded and everything like these companies were just opening up their vaults and pouring out stuff that that can't have sold anything in terms of numbers i mean my favorite story i don't know how true this is but when i was in college one of the shows i directed was your own thing which at the time uh was not available on cd i had never actually heard the score when i signed up to direct it i had only read the script and thought it was hilarious <laughs> oh, there you go. and then uh one of my friends from one of these internet the cast recording listservs actually sent me a record of the score so i could hear it before i started directing oh good um and at the time i was like I just I emailed Bill Rosenfield. I was like, you know, is it time to put this out on CD? And he was like, David, you were the only person who has ever asked me for that. But within six <laughs> months, it was out on CD. So I don't know if I can really take credit for that, but I will. Sure. <laughs> Why wouldn't you take full credit for that? So when actually, you are uniquely situated, I think, to answer or at least have a discussion with me that I've been dying to have with with somebody, which is so my son. I think I might have mentioned this on the last episode. My son has been deep 
in the paint on uh, Guys and Dolls, the 1992 yes. cast album Guys and Dolls. And I, which is an amazing album, but I consider that album to be kind of the cast album Rubicon from the Goddard Lieberson, Thomas Z. Shepard way of production and the newer model, which is we have to record every single piece of music written for this show. And mm. the the Godspell recording, which I love, has like, oh, there's the Crapshooters dance on it for the first time. It has extended dances for like um, Bushel and a Peck and all this, like all the dance music's in there. And I love it. But it does lead to some interesting cast album, I'll use interesting co- decisions that I have complained about that going in, in modern cast albums where there's just too much, like the, it doesn't run as an album to me. It's like a record of a score, which is a kind of album, but a different, a totally different thing. And the Newsies cast album always sticks out to me as one that has like so much music on it. And then they're doing the little sound effects for the dances and it just doesn't feel, it, it's not a great album. I think if you'd edited that down to a tight, you know, more quote unquote traditional style, it'd be better. But as somebody who was sort of deeper in it than I was at the time, obviously, is my timeline correct, or do you think it was happening before that, or was it sort of... So I think there's two different things mm-hmm. happening here. So one is that I I would not lump Goddard, Lieberson, and Thomas D. Shepard together, because they had very different approaches, they did, yeah. even though even though Shepard was, you know... Studied, uh, he was, you know, Liber- he was the mentee of, of that's yes. why, I, why I brought them together, like um, that, but yes. You know, but I, I... You are correct. Goddard Lieberson never would have produced the company cast album the way Thomas C. E. Shepard did, or Merrily. Like, you're absolutely right. right. He, very and different. he absolutely never would have produced Victor Victoria the way... Yeah. Which, which to me, when I think of, like, that to me is sort of the nadir of the Thomas C. E. Shepard approach, where there's so much dialogue yeah. for a show that does not have brilliant dialogue. Right. Um, you know, it's one thing if 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 it's hearing Gwen Verdon do the Roxy speech is a dialogue track that I cherish yes. because even though it's long, it is so brilliant that mm-hmm. every time I hear it, I am thrilled to hear it. I do not need Victor Victoria, the radio play. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Right. At the same time, I actually think that the record every note thing grows out of this tradition that we're talking about with girl crazy and showboat where they were doing these historical reconstructions that were, were selling very well. So that, planted this idea that, oh, there is an interest in hearing every note and all these dance breaks and whatever. And with Guys and Dolls in particular, that is uh, the third Broadway cast recording of the score and the umpteenth cast recording period of the score. So if you're the record producer approaching Guys and Dolls, what's going to make your recording stand out to someone who already owns the very excellent original cast album yes, and the very album. bizarre but fun Motown cast album yeah. and the wacky but ring-a-ding-ding Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack album. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, right. so, so giving you every note is one reason to do that. Uh, you know, that's one way to make it stick out and make it worthwhile because someone is out there being like, I love guys and dolls, but why do I need this one? Ooh, the crapshooter stance, right. you know? <laughs> um, so I think there's that. Um, but also I think there are record producers who have philosophies and there are record producers who don't. Sure. So um, John Yap, who runs J records, he, his philosophy is to record every single note, 
uh, because he sees himself as a preservationist mm. in a way. Um, and he sees that as something that he brings to the table. And he does this you know, whole masterwork series where they do, uh, it's not quite the historical reconstructions because he's more interested in what is currently being licensed by the companies and providing a document that is useful for anyone putting on the show right now with the materials available. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll record every note of that. And I think that that's something that's very useful to people, particularly doing community theater. Um, and that's his approach. Um, you know, Tommy Krasker, who doesn't do a lot of contemporary cast albums, but is the producer of Girl Crazy and is the producer behind PS Classics and has gone on to do a lot of these reconstructions. You know, I think he's a record every note within reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I think like this Girl Crazy album does not have exit music, right? Because right. Uh, probably because they couldn't find it, probably because with the band that they had in the original production of Girl Crazy, they just soloed on I Got Rhythm and it was fine. Right. Um, but also because like enough is enough and it needs to fit on one CD. And also what makes the ideal listening experience? And that's, a, you know, what makes a great listening experience versus what is a historical preservation or different things and what will encourage someone who already owns the soundtrack of the film newsies to want to get the Broadway recording of newsies, you know, or sure uh, that that's a different thing too. And so, you know, sometimes new orchestrations, new arrangements, new, you know, new exciting cast members is enough. Sometimes it's not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like the Oklahoma, the new, the newest cast recording, like, in that it's the arrangements that sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they did the recording of the 1979, 1980 Broadway production, you know, there wasn't, there was a very good, but you know, scratchy dated original cast album. There was a very good, but not, uh, not representative of the stage version film soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at that point, I, I want to say that's a Tom Shepard album, but I'm not hundred percent sure without looking at it. Uh, that was an that's opportunity for RCA to say, uh, you know, what's going to make this Oklahoma a must have for right. collectors who already own probably two copies of Oklahoma. We're going to record every note we can. And, and, and I'm grateful for that. Is that the Oklahoma that I reach for when I want to listen to Oklahoma? Not usually, right. but is it a great recording that serves a purpose? Sure. You know, so, but what's interesting is that there was this album, Goddard Liebertson in the forties and fifties had this whole, series of studio cast albums of shows that predated yes. the cast album era. And one of those right. was Girl Crazy. Uh, but that was early in the series. It was before he really decided to make them sound like cast albums. So mm-hmm. unlike, say, On Your Toes, which he you know cast, fully cast and recorded it so it sounded like a cast album, Girl Crazy was a Mary Martin and Friends album. Yes. Uh, so you got most of the songs, but it didn't sound like the show. And there were a couple of songs that they just got extraordinarily wrong because of uh, some of the issues with the materials available so much. So this is hilarious to me. Um, the song Bronco Busters, when Goddard Liebson recorded it, they moved all of the lyrics one syllable off. So the really? song, the song as it's supposed to be, and as it is on the studio recording that we're talking about is. But on the other version, it's... We are Bronco 
bust the rock, cause we fear no man or beast. On western prairies, we shoot the fairies, or send them back to the east. Like the rangers, we fear no dangers, we are never far. We are Bronco Busters, we bust the Broncos or Um, and because they just they had bad materials and and no one thought to ask Ira Gershwin if this was right. I don't know. Right. Like, so oh, that's uh, it's funny. wild. That's um, really funny. Oh, I'm bookmarking that right now. I'm gonna edit that in. Just a, a tangent for a second. What are some albums you've heard lately that have made you go, "Oh, that's a that's like what I'm talking about. That's what I'm feeling. That's that's the kind of cast album I can kind of more get behind." Hmm. Oh, this is such a cheating answer, and I'm so sorry that I'm going to say this, but Stage Door Records in London just reissued on three CDs the Showtime Collection, which was a series of EPs put out in the early days of the long playing record mm-hmm. uh, that sort of, they were sort of the precursor to the Goddard, Lieberson, Lemon Angle studio cast albums that we were talking about a little bit before. Mm-hmm. These were just four tracks each from a bunch of shows, most of which hadn't received proper cast albums yet. Mm. Um, They weren't necessarily the original Broadway arrangements or orchestrations or casts, but they were in the style of. And uh, and it's a mix of things that you know very well, like Oklahoma and Anything Goes, stuff that you might not know as well, like uh, Mademoiselle Modiste and The Little Show. And it's just it's just like a delightful buffet of the first half century of musical theater. Hmm. Um, so again, like I feel guilty being like, Oh, what came out recently? And it's like, well, here's these things from the forties. <laughs> I know you really are uh, cheating, but that's okay. I'll let you, you're a guest. Uh, I'll let you cheat. I mean, listen, the, the newest thing that I've been listening to is unknown soldier by Michael Friedman, mm. which is also one of the last shows mm-hmm. I saw before the shutdown. I, w- I was at opening night, um, which was, uh, it, it was an incredible show and I'm so glad that they recorded it. Um, you know, this, it's, uh, this is a show that I, I'd be curious for those who haven't seen the show, if they feel like it tells the story through Mm. the album, because I think it does, but it's a complex story and it's not, it's not built out of the kind of songs that are going to show up in anyone's cabaret act. Mm. Um, you know, it's much more, it's, it's not operatic and it, but it's not really through composed, but it's much more of like a modular score where songs sort of arise out of situations and then sort of recede back into them. Um, and it's just, it's, I, I really love Michael Freeman's work. Mm-hmm. It was such a loss that he did not live longer. Um, and I'm so grateful that there's this massive recording project now to, to capture mm-hmm. um, both his shows as they're produced and those that either um, were produced in the past and never got recorded or maybe won't get produced. So um, so that that's probably the most recent thing that that I've really been putting on repeat. Hmm. The other thing, and I'm so sorry, I'm so embarrassed. Uh-oh. I can't get enough of Diana the Musical. Oh well, David, it is awful. You're it only terrible. Human. You're you're it only is, human. That's but it is. It, it, See, I <laughs> it, it just it, I find it so delightful. Oh my um, gosh! Well, yeah, because it is. <laughs> it is, you know, and it, it's it's not. I, I can't explain it because it's not good. It's it's, it's oh, not it's, good. Oh, it's more than not good. It's horrendous. I mean, it's but, like but it's also like not quite horrendous enough without the visuals to be 
truly delicious. Yeah. But I think because I watch it on Netflix and have those visuals in my head, okay. I can then listen to the album and recreate that experience. And that's enough for me. Okay. See, that's funny. I don't, I have not listened to it. I've watched it twice now. Mm-hmm. Um, and will again, like just eagerly. Uh, it's very good at one and a half speed, I have to say, too. <laughs> Um, the album is missing the two best tracks from the video, too. Well, what are the two upsetting. best tracks for you from the... Uh, it is missing Judy Kay's Act 2 opener. <laughs> and it does not have the <laughs> Disney Princess version of uh, Underestimated that plays over the end credits. Oh, that's Sorry, funny. I had to remember the name of that song. I was yeah. like, Underappreciated? No, that's not No, it. Underestimated. <laughs> when you're underestimated, you have to do Underestimated things. That's not how it goes. Um, <laughs> And, I, and it's amazing because that song in the sh- in the context of the show mm-hmm. is just like a really weird, like, why are we doing this? Get on with it. This is a terrible opening number. Yeah. But as an end credits pop version, it's mm-hmm. actually a great or at least like a pretty good song. Yeah. It feels. Yeah. Because they are pretty. I mean, there are some bops in there. Like the, the show occasionally musically, never lyrically, but musically right. slaps. This is a show that is just crying out for a German cast album. Oh, my gosh. It is. It is. I mean, I, I did a whole emergency podcast right after I watched, like immediately after I watched it, because I had to tell everybody to go watch this thing because it's just like you you can't believe it is what it is. I did like you reminded me with it when Judy Kay comes back out for, comes out for the top of Act Two to like give us a summary of what we've seen so far. I was like, see, man, if this show had a narrator, I would be following it a lot better. And I'm glad it doesn't have a narrator. I'm glad they're teasing me with a narrator because that's bonkers that you just came out to narrate for like half a beat and then went away again. That's really um, funny. You know, I followed Act 1 no problem, and I realized this because I watched The Crown. And then Act mm-hmm. 2 is all stuff that The Crown hasn't done yet. And so and I had to like, keep pausing it and, like, asking my partner, like, wait, is this real? Did that happen? <laughs> you have to, like, you really have to Im- admire how much that show learned all the wrong lessons from Hamilton. And it did it in the best possible way. Like, it really just sort of... Not because it's not a rap musical, like it doesn't, do, but it, like it took the structural covering the same basic period of time, almost like twenty years or however long it covers, and was like, okay, we need this number here, we need that number here, we need to introduce a new character at the top of Act Two. He's got to have a really fun, raunchy song, and then like we're gonna put those two characters together. I mean, it's just like, man, no, my favorite song is the Frank Wildhorn wannabe track, Diana. Open parentheses, the rage. Close parentheses. <laughs> that is, that is a moment where like. Him repeating the word Diana over and over again, which is a word we've heard a lot in the show so far, it did have that experience where it just lost all meaning. I'd heard it so many times. You start to think about the sounds around the like Diana. Mm-hmm. That's not a word. Diana. Like it just. It's it, also terrible syllables to sing, right? Like, it is. It's like an awful. That's vowel. why they just rhyme it with itself. It's like he ends each line with Diana. <laughs> it is uh, for good, me. This yeah. the song is the dress. And if you haven't yes. listened to the cast album, you may not know that the version in the Netflix show has toned down lyrics. Really? Oh, yes. I didn't know that. Because that is the moment that's it didn't save the show for me because I was totally in. But I was really like, this is exactly what I want right now. I want a huge musical comedy number like this late in a show that has not given me any hint that this is going to happen. <laughs> I'll say this. Act two of that show is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh Every God, really scene is. just sort of like, like ratchets it up from the previous one it's and like you just keep thinking like they're not going to do that That's are they exactly and then they do the that feeling. you're just like oh they're not gonna they're not gonna pretend that the queen and her left on this very heartfelt they are they are gonna pretend that that's how they left they are they're gonna pretend that they were like simpatico and this is all over that's hilarious or like 
everyone knows about like how important it was that she went and like did this photo op and and yeah the AIDS patients, the AIDS patients. But yeah. then to turn that into the moment where she realizes that she too must come out of the closet <laughs> is like fall off the couch, oh unbelievably God. bad. It's cringe. It's so unbelievably cringe. But it so doesn't. It never breaches into that level of self importance where I hate it. That's why it's right. so, it's so easy to love it. It's so easy to hate it. It's just catchy enough. And God, those actors are doing their best, man. They are really trying so hard up there to make anything. It it's makes great. me so sad that in the era of COVID safety, there's no way to second act a show. You would, you could just see the second act. That'd be great. But I do like I, the thing I didn't say in the in the emergency podcast was like if you watch it and you find your your, your interest waning, just crank it up to one and a half speed. You you'll be like, oh, you'll you'll get everything, and it's 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 absolutely hilarious. It's so worth your time. Yes, Diana, all day, every day, Diana. Hard crashing though, real fast back into Girl Crazy. I do have to ask you, what is your favorite song? Oh gosh, I love them all so much. I think you cheated on the cast album question, so I can't let you cheat on this one. I know, I know. <laughs> well, so here's the question: You're asking favorite song or favorite track? Oh, excellent distinction. I'll go with favorite track. Okay, because we're talking about the album. So, what's your favorite track? Uh, you know, I think it's Vicky Lewis singing "Barbary Coast." Oh, that's an excellent answer. That's an absolutely excellent answer. That's it makes you wonder moment. why she didn't get the Merman track, right? Like she, yeah. Well, we know why. I mean, right, right. <laughs> it's nothing against her. It's it's all Lauren and Luft all the time. David, this has been wonderful. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so, if you like this kind of discussion, but wish we were talking about Muppets, uh, you can find me at Muppeturgy, which is uh, my podcast where we are recapping is the right word we are researching each episode of the muppet show we just started season two so uh i think when you hear this episode we will be somewhere around the rich little episode but we we go through each episode and and not only talk about what they do in the episode but talk about where do these songs come from who else performed them what are they you know Mm -hmm. who wrote them what how does you know what what is what is the world beyond what you're seeing on your TV screen? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. And then we're also on the socials at Muppeturgy everywhere. Uh, so that's like dramaturgy, but with Muppet with at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you want to look for me myself, I am It's the Levy. Like it's delightful. It's delicious. It's the Levy. But, oh, nice. but Levy, L-E-V-Y uh, on you know Twitter and Instagram and wherever. My Instagram is garbage. You don't want to follow me there. David, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I loved this conversation. Anytime. <laughs> Guide there, the devil's your host, and the bar-
original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to David Levy for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Oh,